Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 28th, 2018. And since this is not a leap year, we are saying goodbye to February today. Tick, tock, tick, tock, the clock ticks for us all. What are you doing to build your liberty and freedom and independence in your life? Because remember, if you're not doing something to make yourself more free and more liberated every single day, you're becoming less free and less liberated every single day. Life is a sliding scale. You either push yourself forward or life pushes you backward. And I... And no matter what Alexa is saying there in the background, it's the truth. And another month is gone. There are 12 months in the year. Two of them, poof, gone. It's not spring yet, though. we got the best part of the year ahead of us to get shit done. Today we're going to talk about getting shit done that maybe we'll be doing through the uh, summer and fall to be ready for winter, depending on where you live. We're going to talk about heating with wood, using firewood and wood stoves and things like that. No, no, the Duke of Permaculture, Paul Wheaton, is not going to come back here and go on a tirade about rocket stoves again. We may actually talk a little bit about that. I don't know. But we're talking about plain old wood heating with a wood stove, and there's some really good ways to do that. My guest today is an incredible contributor on the blog with the show episodes Uh, An incredible amount of knowledge on livestock and things like that that he's provided in comments over the years. He's been listening to the Survival Podcast all the way back since about episode 89 or 90. He's not sure, but that's a a long time, isn't it? He's been a great contributor over the years, and he's finally stepped up and said, I I want to come on the air and talk about heating with wood. His name is Ted Keel. If you've been... uh, a follower of the show for a long time, and if you you know if you tend to get by the actual website and not just listen to the show and read the comments and the blogs, I'm sure you're familiar with his name. He's uh, the part of the fifth generation to a farm on a couple hundred acres in Middle Missouri. It was originally purchased in 1911. They primarily raised beef, goats, uh, and timber. He has a degree in engineering physics, and he mentors 4-H robotics for his county. In his spare time, he's renovating the house his grandfather and great-uncles built for his own family of six. He brings us three decades' worth of experience with firewood and using wood stoves, his primary heat, as well as accumulated knowledge of past generations. And again, been listening to us since around episode 89 or 90. So we'll have Ted on in just a bit, and he's, again, a wealth of knowledge. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. Man, I am in love with my Ridge Wallet. I, I, and I get a lot of a lot of comments about it when I'm paying. I didn't really understand that it was such a big deal. Like, I thought, oh, it's a cool product. I think this would be great for the audience. And so we made a deal to get you guys a discount on it for MSB, and we brought them on as a sponsor as we had a spot that we decided to open up. Uh, but I, I've been kind of shocked. People like, oh, that's the Ridge Wallet. Where'd you get it? I'm on uh, RidgeWallet.com. Like, you can just go there and get one, and I actually, I think I've picked up a couple customers and new listeners just from people seeing it and asking me about it. It's a great wallet. It's a minimalist wallet. We, we, we get a lot of that stuff, that big lump on your butt, gone, 
And uh, I'm finally stopping my, you know, my playing self-grab ass with, you know, where's my wallet, where's my wallet. For like the first couple weeks I carried this thing, I was constantly, you know, patting my butt looking for my wallet. I love this thing. I love the iPhone case that I have for it. It's just awesome. Um, and, and they have a great backpack, like a, you know, a day back. It's just awesome as well. And power supply that goes in that backpack to keep everything charged up. Ridge Wallet, they're a great partner with a great product. And again, man, RFID is, is an interesting technology. It has a lot of applications, but it also makes all those credit cards in your, your wallet subject to like identity theft with like an $8 part off of eBay. Well, you put it in a Ridge Wallet and those days are over. Check them out today, RidgeWallet.com. Remember to get your discount uh, from the MSB if you are a member as well when you do. Next up today, ButcherBox.com, the other sponsor we brought on for this year. Man, it, having ButcherBox is like having someone that you can send to the grocery store for you. And I mean like the good grocery store, like like Central Market or something, not like Kroger's or Albert's. There's no offense to nothing, but they just don't have the same quality of meat and say, go pick me out the following meats for the next couple weeks. And then that person's actually capable of going there and looking and picking out the best cuts. It's awesome stuff, organic, grass-fed, you name it, they've got it. Some of the best pork I've eaten, you know, out of it, you know, being able to buy it instead of like, to do better, you gotta find someone locally raising pork. I mean, that's the only way you're gonna do better. And it better be something like guinea hog or something like that to be better than this stuff. It's fantastic. And you can get a great discount on it, and you can get a discount over and over and over again if you're an MSB member. And if you're like me, you take your free discount and you know what you apply it to? Free bacon. Free bacon for life. Who doesn't want free bacon? If you don't want free bacon, you can send me your bacon. How about that? Check them out today, butcherbox.com. Now, before we bring Ted on, let's go ahead and take a look at the year in history. We're up to the year 105 at tspwiki.com, where David Verne has for us today a segment called The Second Dossian War. As the Romans continued to build infrastructure and stockpile supplies on their side of the border, the Dacian king, Debaculus, tries to come up with a way to beat Rome. He invited the Roman commander, Leginius, to the Dacian capital for a conference. Debaculus captured Leginius and tried to ransom him back to Trajan. He would return Leginius if Trajan abandoned the territory ceded to Rome in the last war and reimbursed Dacia for the last war. As Trajan tried to stall for time, Leginius managed to procure poison and killed himself to deny the Dossians the valuable bargaining chip. You think that's a loyal general? Seriously, man. Uh, with his hostage dead, Debaculus launched an attack on Roman territory north of the Danube. Trajan immediately left Rome and headed to the front, where the Romans managed to defend the area around Trajan's bridge, which was still under construction. The bridge will, completed, completed next string, will be completed next spring, just in time for a massive assault into Dacia. My take by David Byrne. Debaculus was playing with fire by trying to hold a Roman legit hostage, and it possibly was the dumbest thing he did. He had spent years since the last war rebuilding his army, trying to gain allies against Rome, but he was nowhere near strong enough to challenge the empire. He was trapped in a no-win scenario. He could either wait and become stronger, allowing Rome to build up, or he could attack now. A rational person might see a third option, simply remain a Roman client state, which wasn't a bad deal, but Debaculus wanted to have complete control over his kingdom. Complete control over his kingdom. Can you see the problem there? If that, assuming we got that right. See, if you're trying to lead a people to independence, then a group of farmers or peasants or slaves can stand off an empire. 
But if you're just trying to make sure you're the one that controls them well, it's, it's not so easy. That's my lesson from history for today out of this one. With that, uh, I'm really excited to bring our special guest on. Again, I've, I've, I've enjoyed his contributions on the blog and his helpfulness to so many people over the years. His name is Ted Keel. He's going to talk to us today about heating with firewood and wood stoves. With that, hey, Ted, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, to offer what I can. I say I've been a long-time listener back to around episode 90. I really appreciate all that you do. Ted, I want to just thank you. I mean, uh, you have been a long-time listener, a long-time contributor on the blog that goes with the episodes. I was saying that uh, before I got you on the air. You've answered a lot of questions for a lot of people in a very helpful way, specifically in regard to livestock. So, you know, thank you for that. I appreciate that. So we got you on to talk about firewood and wood stoves today. Before we dig down into that, can you tell people kind of like, well, who is Ted Keel, man? Like, you know, take us back to high school, the, you know, the kind of connection question, and, and how did you end up where you are now? Sure. Uh, I was raised on a farm, uh, the farm we're here at now. It's kind of at the crossroads between the Kansas Prairie and the Ozark Hills. Uh, so fifth, I'm the fifth generation on the farm. Uh, and we're a century farm, which is pretty exciting. Uh, I went to a private school where my mom taught, which covered our tuition, and always wanted to come back to farm, uh, but guidance counselors, etc., kind of discouraged that. And watching the financial struggles that my dad went through with the, the hog crash back in the early 90s, uh, I was really hesitant to go that direction. Uh, eventually, I kind of figured that, you know, maybe after I retire, I'll be able to come back and farm. So... I planned for college, uh, worked at a neighbor's confinement hog building here. I kind of call it fast food whenever the hogs wanted to run. Um, and that was how I earned my money for college. It was also how I made my motivation to not drop out of college. So uh, my thoughts then were, if this is farming, I don't want to do it. So uh, it was uh, how I managed to uh, pay my way through college, uh, at least the first two years, uh, I'd also come back up here to uh, stay with my parents and basically would cut firewood in, in exchange for rent. They didn't really require it, but I wanted to give something back. Uh, eventually, I moved fully away, moved out. Uh, I was working on a physics degree and uh, lived in a bus for about a year and a half to pay, uh, save money. Uh, I was working two to three jobs in addition to a full-time class load. Uh, eventually did get an engineering physics degree, which is proud of that. Uh, bought a house in 04 as a senior in college. Eventually met a girl, got a good job, got married, had a couple kids, and kind of had the stereotypical American dream. Um, I did start getting frustrated when we started having layoffs. I got frustrated with the cubicle uh, and travel, and I realized that we kind of had an incongruency um uh, I was overweight, and uh, eventually it was about this time I was turned on to TSP. Uh, and listening to you talk about making a better life now instead of waiting for retirement. So I looked to improve our situation. In 2012, we bought a mobile home with cash, set it up on family land, and moved up and decided we were going to start looking for a job. We knew we wanted to move within a year, uh, but had to kind of have that job to uh, provide financial backing. Two and a half months later, we had it, and we were moving. Since then, I've been interested in robotics and automation, uh, as well as making money from our land. Uh, 
let's see, and uh, we've been working a day job, uh, and then also working on Plan B with goats, sawmill, wood shop, and uh, arts and crafts that we sell. We've had our failures, but now we're living our dream and are surrounded here by cattle, goats, pasture, and trees. Very cool, man. And so we're, we're here to talk about firewood today. Can we start out with maybe sources of firewood? Because I think everybody thinks of, you know, the lumberjack-looking guy splitting wood or whatever. But there's there's probably multiple ways people can procure firewood, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's the easiest way of all, which is just call a guy up and he'll bring it out and stack it for you. Uh, but there's a lot better ways that you can go about getting firewood for free uh, just for your labor. Um, there's a lot of different sources. Uh, Craigslist comes to mind. Uh, you can often find free wood on there or very cheap wood to just go and pick up. Um, in conjunction with that, a lot of it's from a tree service where they don't want to pay the tree service to haul it off. So they're generally willing to about give it away as opposed to paying somebody to haul it off. Uh, tree services are another great way to get wood as well. Uh, if you say that you'll take it, they will generally just come and uh, dump it at your house. You know, you may have to be picky. Uh, you could go to their yard, etc. But a lot of times that can be had for free, especially if you're in a more urban area. Then the really only cost is your time, and, you know, you do kind of have to have a chainsaw. But uh, very easy access there. Uh, you can often find places where a utility company may be doing a cut, uh, clearing lines, maybe for a new power line, etc. Uh, sawmills often have waste products available as uh, the slabs, which is the bark and a little bit of wood that comes out the offside of the uh, of a log. And these again are pretty cheap uh, and already halfway processed. Uh, generally, they'll load them onto a trailer for you, or a lot of times they'll let you cut on site and uh, throw on your trailer. Uh, any place that has been logged is a great place to look for firewood. Uh, they'll leave the tops of the trees. So you've got a lot of nice firewood that can be anywhere from, usually it's 10 to 12 inches and down, which is a really nice size. Uh, again, a lot of landowners would just assume give it away. Sometimes they ask for a little money or, or firewood in return, cut on shares. But they would rather give that away than have to go through the work of, uh, shoving it into a pile and burning it and dealing with it. Uh, National Forest, if they're close to you, can be a resource. Generally, for a very small permit fee, you can get oh and cut wood there. Uh, if you've got any farmers around you, uh, a lot of the farmers in my area, at least, uh, even despite having equipment and stuff that would make firewood processing pretty easy, uh, a lot of the ones I talk to think firewood's too much work. They've did done too much of it as a kid. Uh, I've seen acres and acres of it around here that are dozed off, windrowed, and burned. I'd much rather see that burned to seat somebody's house than to just burned and, you know, just to uh, get rid of it. Uh, in addition, uh, there's other waste streams that can be had. Think like a, a wood shop or a woodworking shop or a cabinet shop. Uh, there's often lots of offcuts there, and the nice thing there is that's all going to be kiln dried. So it's a very nice dry wood, give you a lot of heat. Uh, and generally, I mean, it's it's more handling because a lot of them can be small pieces, but it's pretty much ready to go. Uh, if you've got a flooring mill, a railroad tie manufacturer, uh, or a pallet builder near you, then there's going to be a lot of offcuts 
and little pieces, uh, again, that uh, are really ideal for a firewood, uh, or at least, you know, kindling firewood, etc. cetera. Uh, construction sites, any new construction, you can get a lot of offcuts there. They're happy to give it away so they don't have to pay the tonnage to get it hauled off. Um, some people like to use used pallets. For me, that's too much work. And I'm good with it. If anybody wants to do that, you have to consider that there's likely going to be nails in it. Um, and so it depends on what you're doing with your ashes. Uh, I always also kind of like to know the source there. Uh, so I've been in industry enough that I've seen some weird chemicals spilled on the pallets. I'd be nervous about burning some of it, you know. Uh, but to be honest, most of what our, we've been burning the last three years has been either deadfall in our uh, forest or else as a byproduct of timber stand improvements. So we'll go in and we'll uh, cut out the low-value trees or ill-formed trees that aren't ever going to make a log and uh, to release some of the better trees. Uh, and then as a byproduct, uh, all of those trees that we are culling out, um, if we time it right, we'll let the goats eat the leaves, but then over, you know, over let it dry a year or two, and then that becomes our firewood. Very cool, man. So a lot of different options there. And I know um, you mentioned like Craigslist and all. I would also encourage people to sign up for nextdoor.com, uh, especially if your neighborhood has one and you might have to start one. I actually had to start mine and tell a couple of neighbors, like, get on this thing. Uh, but now it's a source of a lot of great stuff. I got a deep freezer from it, but uh, I did see somebody just basically begging people to take free firewood. And you did have to go get it. And you know it was pretty much some trees they had dropped, and they didn't want to they didn't want to buck them or anything. But it was there, and uh, it was like four or five people went, and it was enough wood that everybody got as much as they wanted. So uh, I'd add that as another uh, place that you can uh, check. Absolutely. So we get firewood. And, you know, I think every young boy probably made a fire in the woods sometime and hacked a chunk off of a tree somewhere with a machete or something and threw it in there and waited for it to go blazing up and heard it sizzle and pop and steam and burn really pathetically <laughs> because cause it wasn't seasoned. So can we talk about how we season firewood and how long we have to do that? Certainly. Uh, so this is probably one of the most contentious, and revered topics in firewood. Everybody's got an opinion on it, uh, and everybody is absolutely certain that they're right. Um, I know people that will go and take wood that's cut down 15 minutes earlier and chuck it right into the stove. Uh, I know other people that say, wow, I really hate di dipping into my firewood that's only been seasoned two years. It's got to be seasoned three for me to really appreciate it. Hmm. Um, a lot of it's going to be climate and species dependent. And uh, you really, you've got to kind of, ex got to experiment and see what works for you the best. Um, ours, we will typically try and cut in the spring and let it season over the summer and then burn it that winter. Anything beyond that for us seems to have diminishing returns. Uh, if we can season it into the woods, uh, then that works. But, uh, um, you know, we don't want to keep it around too long. Uh now, most of what we'll actually burn has been, you know, either dead, dead standing, uh, dead and down, or maybe dead and hung up in another tree. So we're cleaning up the woods there. Uh, and if it's a bigger tree, say like an oak, 
Uh, if it's dead and standing, we still want to kind of season it a week or two if we can. Uh, but I'm not afraid to chuck that in in a you know over a uh, in, in a day or two or even sooner if I have to. Uh, when we cut green, we do try and season in the in the woods, often in tree form. Uh, one thing we've done is we've been culling a lot of our honey locusts and elm, and so one thing we found is. Uh, there's two methods that work well for us. Is either we'll do a hinge cut, and uh, you know let the root reserves uh, kind of pull up and uh, let it leaf out a few times for goat and cow forage, uh, or else we will uh, girdle the tree or or cut cut it off completely. Uh, we're really moving more towards girdling, where you make a cut all the way around the tree so it can't move its nutrients. It may still leaf out, but it's going to die over that year. And uh, people really fuss about the thorns on a honey locust. But what I found is that uh, after two years, those thorns don't have much fight left in them. They kind of just crumble up, and, and it's pretty easy to deal with. Um, just for fun, we've been trying to do a little bit with our slippery elm. Uh, slippery elm has a, a nice uh, mucinogenic property. Uh, it's good for a, a throat tonic. Uh, and the inner bark is actually a saleable product. So instead of cutting that low, what we've been doing is we've been trying to pollard it uh, up high to let the uh, release the better trees, but at the same time produce some forage for the goats as mm. well as produce some, uh, uh, see if we can get some bark production going. It's an experiment. Uh, typically, though, what we'll do on the smaller stuff is I will cut it into about six-foot lengths, and then I will stack it uh, off of the ground to dry. Uh, and then I'll sit there and let it lay a year, maybe two, out in the woods. And then I can go, you know, back a truck up to it, cut it up real quick, and get a load in and out real fast. Uh, basically, I don't want to be handling the wet wood. Um, I kind of consider that I'm, I'm a hard worker. I'll work as hard as needed, but I'm also lazy. <laughs> I don't want to handle the green wood if I can avoid it. It's kind of like how I don't want to dry the dishes when the water's just going to evaporate anyway. Uh, in the same respect, I don't really want to handle the green wood when it's heavy, when it'll be lighter if I just wait sure. and let, the, let it evaporate. No, there's no doubt about that. There's a massive difference in weight. Absolutely. So it's one of these things that I've, you know, this has been what's worked for me. You know, cut it in the spring or the fall before, burn it the next winter if it's green, uh, beyond that, I seem you get diminishing returns. It's just hard to justify the extra handling and storage, etc. Unless I'm storing it out in the woods, then I can let it go two to three years, and it's just kind of on tap there when I need it. You know, I think one thing we probably should point out. Obviously, if you're running a chainsaw, you should have the knowledge to do it and be careful um, in any event. I don't care if you're cutting a two by four and half off the back of a truck, but specifically when you you've mentioned a couple times cutting standing dead trees, if you girdled that tree or something, you know how long it's been dead. That that's one thing. When you go through a woodlot and you find a standing dead tree, you really really need to be careful taking that tree out. Um, I, in particular, one time was taking out a standing dead tree at my place in Arkansas, and it was one of those things where it was a good damn thing that I had two avenues of egress, because as I was cutting the tree, way before you would expect the tree to come down, <laughs> at the base of the tree, it gave out, and the tree dropped. I'm not talking about a widowmaker coming down from above. I mean the entire tree 
just went over. Um, and it didn't look like that was the case at all. It actually had rotted below the soil level, and the vibrations on the tree and the stress of it beginning brought the whole tree down. And, I mean, you always need to do that, but that's an example. I've talked to a lot of guys that are like, you know, they, they're pros. They cut trees for a living, and they'd much rather cut a living tree than a dead one because you know what you're dealing with. So I, I think you'd probably agree. You've got to be really careful yeah. with, with standing dead. And it also depends on the species quite a bit. True. Uh, like if I'm cutting an oak, it's going to give me telltale signals, hey, this one's going to be a problem. Uh, but for like a maple, gosh, it could have a hollow center, and you may not know it until it's you know starting to fall over, and you're like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, or, you it's interesting. Saw, yeah. so. <laughs> it's interesting. It's like, oh, shit. That's what it's like. <laughs> but definitely, yeah, your two methods, you know, two paths of egress, that's pretty important, so... It's like it's real hard, and you know I wouldn't want to get into like felling or no. much chainsaw advice over a podcast. There's videos, or, or find a mentor on that. That's really the best way to go. Yeah, definitely. I think working with somebody that's used a chainsaw before uh, and then not cut off a finger and has done it for more than a year or two <laughs> is probably a good way to go. Um, you mentioned a little bit of this on already, but what type of wood are you using, and what type of wood do you recommend? And is there any particular wood that you say like do not use this? Sure. Um, here's what I've found. Pretty much all wood burns. And, uh, I mean, that's, it seems obvious, yes, but, I mean, all wood burns. Uh, we burn pretty much everything that comes out of our woods. I mean, we are not particular. Uh, what you'll find is that when you get the wood dry, the heavier it is, the more BTU you'll get out of it. Uh, and that's just across species. So elm, you know, and a lot of people don't like elm. We've heated our house for the last uh, two years with, you know, 80 to 90 percent elm uh, that we've been culling out. And uh, it's been fine as long as you get it dry. Uh, but, you know, the only trick there with the weight is like, okay, wet wood's heavy, so you just got to be cautious that you're not buying or, <laughs> or you know, you're not comparing uh, wet wood with good dry wood. So, but otherwise, weight can be a pretty good indicator of what, you've, what you can use. Uh, it is a little bit lo uh, location dependent. Uh, around here, we've got a lot of oak and cedar, uh, especially when you get into the Ozarks. Uh, we get a lot of hickory through here, too. And the oak and the hickory are going to be the classics that around here everybody wants. Mm -hmm. Locust is well favored uh, locally. I mean, not everybody knows about locust. Uh, you know, honey you know, honey locust, we don't have a lot of black locusts. Uh, but there's a lot of people that don't want to deal with the thorns, even if it's been old and debarked, etc. So, uh, hedge is an awesome firewood. Uh, it's almost as puts out as much heat per uh, weight, or I'm sorry, per volume of like an anthracite coal, from what I, people have told me. We use it here. Uh, we've got an outdoor furnace. Do you don't want to use that inside because whenever you put it in, it's no big deal. But when you come back and open the door, it's going to pop like a whole bunch of firecrackers. <laughs> and so that can throw sparks out, and you know, especially if there's a carpet or something or a dog. You, know, you don't want to catch those sparks out in your room. So you want a nicer, cleaner, you know, no hedge inside. Keep that outside. <laughs> okay. So uh, I say a little hedge can go a long way, too. I say we've had it where we've put, my wife's put in hedge accidentally with, before I started separating it out, and I got home and it was 85 in the house and the windows were open. <laughs> so, uh, 
in other areas, some of the favored woods are going to be your ashes and your maples. We don't get that many of them around here, uh, so I can't say a whole lot about it. I got some ash for the first time this year out of a, a yard that I was helping to clean up. I will say, wow, that's some of the slickest splitting wood I've ever had. Um, but most everything else around here is kind of looked down on. It's kind of you get your firewood snobs and say, well, I, you know, I wouldn't want to have any of that uh, uh, hackberry, you know. That's the, uh, so uh, that's honestly the majority of what we burn is going to be your elm, hackberry, cedar, uh, bits and pieces, some dowdy wood, even buggy wood. Uh, you know, we could figure that we could sell the other wood at another time, but there's not going to be nobody that's going to buy this other stuff. So we're going to ha- we will go ahead and use that in our furnace. Well, I think it it, it it works just fine. I mean, I, I I think of all the people that are like never burn softwood ever, and I think of I think of just making a meme of some dude up in Alaska with one of those wood piles, you know, that's up over the roof of the house, and it's all spruce, and the guy just saying, "Really, bro." Um, but but there, you know, it is it is regional, and what you can afford to be a snob if you're surrounded by oak and and, and hickory and pecan, right? Um, I yeah, guess all you've got filet mignon. You don't really need to eat much of that hamburger. Yeah, that <laughs> chuck, right? But then it also is a there is a a reality there, like these uh, white pines that that grew up around. You know, like you you leave the ground empty for three days, and there's a pine tree coming up in Arkansas. And this white pine, and when you try to season that, you almost feel like you're holding a piece of styrofoam, and it doesn't burn dirty. It just doesn't burn. Well, it's like burning paper. It just burns really, really fast. So sure. I, I think when you say something like softwood versus hardwood, well, what softwood? Because spruce is a pretty damn good firewood, and if you live where that's what that's what you get, then well, that's what you get. Absolutely, and you know, I'm, I'm going to have to. You know, I'd have to take a phone a friend there because the only real softwood we have around here is cedar, and it's a pretty good firewood. Yes, so, cedar's cedar burns high. Yeah, cedar's <laughs> good, but like as far as you know, pines and spruces, that's not something we really have around here. So I can't, I you know, can't say much there. I, I took, uh, I had some cedar fencing, you know, the slats. It was like mm-hmm. left over from some reconstruction I'd done, and we had a fireplace going at my place in Arlington, and I threw one of those slats in there. I'll never do that the hell again. That was, <laughs> I thought I was going to have to get the fire extinguisher out. I mean, that was like, wow. Yeah. That's probably western red cedar, too. So. Yeah. That's, don't burn that shit in your fireplace, folks. Don't do it. <laughs> I promise you, you will not like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, was, and it was a little piece. It wasn't like a couple foot long. It was like an eight or ten inch piece of that stuff. And I, I mean, to be fair, I threw it on some really, you know, really good raging coal based fire. But still, man, I was like, man, I hope that goes out before the chimney catches up. Um, oh yeah, I say we like to use a little cedar whenever we're trying to get coals caught back up. So. Oh boy, it's a, a kindling. Yeah, man. I mean, that's. Good. And that's what's like the white pine and the yellow pine and stuff. It makes a great kindling, and I, that's one of the things I like about it. Uh, up north, we usually use like birch bark or something like that, but you can't find a birch tree down here to save your life. Sure, I've heard good things about like birch and beech and such as well. So, but like I said, there's it, it, we don't really have them in Missouri. So, I mean, I've my experience is you know kind of extensive, but only right here. So, if sure. you get out in the northeast, I, I, you know, there's probably people screaming. Gosh, I can't believe you didn't mention this species. Sure. You know, 
It's just not something that I'm familiar with. Yeah, butternut. Well, I don't have any of that. Or beechnut. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't have any. I just, I, you know, uh, we we burned uh, a lot of black tulipo in uh, Arkansas, and it it burned as good as anything else. I mean, we didn't have a stove. We just had a fireplace. But, I mean, it wasn't like you threw it in there and it, it smoldered or, you know, it was gone in five seconds like a piece of white pine or something. It burned just fine. And if you don't live where that tree grows, you probably wouldn't have a clue about it. Sure. And then, therefore, if you are surrounded by, you know, hickory and oak, you would say, ah. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Was a, so when you're, when you're running a, a, a wood-burning stove, Ted, how often do you feed it? You know, it kind of depends on how cold it is, which, you know, kind of you know, goes without saying. On average, I would say that when we're running it, it's probably three to four times a day. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll put some big stuff in it overnight to uh, hold the coals. Uh, that way we've got, uh, I can get up in the morning before my wife, throw some more wood in there. It'll relight and be nice and warm when she gets up. Uh, my wife will tend it once during the day. Uh, when I get back home, I'll check it. Uh, I'll add enough if needed, you know, to get it going, but, you know, to get a good bed of coals in it, to basically to prep it. Uh, and then uh, as we're about ready to go to bed, go back out and start the process over and fill it with some good stuff to go overnight. Uh, what I found is if it's colder than, say, about 10, 20 degrees, I do need to fill it once in the evening. Uh, but, or I'm sorry, once in the, uh, the middle of the night. So about 1 a.m. I'll go out and fill it. Um, I'll, you know, jump up, throw on my Carhartt a ha- headlamp, and uh, uh, slip on some shoes, and I will go out, feed the stove. And uh, I've looked at, my t- uh, looked at the clock. I'll be back in bed in under five minutes. Okay. Uh, now, this is a forced air outdoor furnace. Uh, if you've got a boiler, those are much nicer. Those are kind of the Cadillac. Some of those are more like once a day, so, you know, it kind of depends on what it is, uh, what kind of stove you've got and how cold it is. Uh, but, you know, it's like a boiler's more money, and uh, but it has some nice features. It keeps uh, keeps the house an even more even temperature and uh, has some other niceties. The biggest thing I would say is that, you know, it's like you want to feed it often enough that you've got some coals left in the bed. Um, I've only lit our fireplace three times this year, and it looks like I may do a fourth coming up. Uh, Lighting takes much more time. You know, it's 20 to 30 minutes to get the stove built up and uh, get some coals going and uh, and to uh, relight a cold stove uh, versus three to five minutes of uh of just you know keeping it lit and that cost of one stick of wood to keep some coals in there is a lot you know a lot less than my time of labor uh to try to relight a stove so i always try and keep some coals going in there so we can instead of trying you know trying to light a uh, cold stove it just it, it, it makes a lot more sense Absolutely. So we talk about different types of stoves and furnaces and things like that for a bit? Sure. Uh, There are, first off, there is, of course, most of the audience here knows about the rocket mass heaters. Uh, I have to say I respect the hell out of Sir Wheaton. I I believe Sir is how you address it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I find the rocket mass heaters intriguing. let him tell you about it. It's episode 2153. Lots of information there. He's the expert. I'm not. So uh, what I'm more familiar with is going to be 
uh, things that are more mass market accessible. And so you kind of have a breakdown in like, you know, four different groups. Uh, so first off, you're going to have your indoor stoves versus your outdoor stoves. So your indoor stoves, you know, that could be a basement, could be in a living room, etc., fireplace. Um, those are nice because, you know, it's like you don't, uh, you don't have to uh, go outside to feed them, but you do have to go outside to bring, the, you know, the wood in periodically, etc., you uh, lose a little efficiency there because it's drawing its draft in from the air in your house, which means that it has to draw outside air into your house, and then that goes up the chimney. So between that and then the, the, the mess that any time you're bringing firewood and bark and dry wood in, you're going to have little bits of pieces of splinters that kind of get down and in your carpet or, or your flooring, etc. Uh, so... I prefer to have an outdoor stove uh, where I get a little, you know, you don't have that draft coming from inside and also keep the mess and any smoke outside. Uh, you know, it's not the most convenient to go out and fill, especially if it's raining. Uh, but like I said, you know, I'm usually in and out in, in about five minutes or less. So it's not, uh, and then I'll feed it when I'm out doing chores and feeding the animals too. So it's kind of like I'm already out there, I'm already dressed. It's really not that big of a hardship for for us to have an outdoor stove uh, compared to the benefits, especially. Okay, the other big split's going to be uh, a forced air versus a boiler. Uh, you're going to have a, a big difference in cost between the two. A forced air can be nice, uh, and that's honestly what we have. It was a lower cost. Uh, it's lower maintenance. Um, it sits about uh, 10 feet from our house, and then it blows in through the ductwork that we already had for our uh, ex existing electric furnace. So a forced air can be pretty easy to integrate, um, simple to install. I mean, I did the installation myself in an afternoon. It wasn't hard at all. Uh, people talk about losses between the, uh, um, the house and the stove, and really they're pretty minimal. You know, we've got some pipe insulation that we wrap the duct work with. Some people run it underground. You know, it, it's really a pretty elegant system that doesn't get used all that much. Uh, boilers do have some very nice perks, though. Uh, boilers, they've got a heat sink, a heat source, so they've got a big water jacket, uh, which means that you can kind of set a pump and your water, uh, set a pump and a thermostat, which will go through a heat exchanger, so you can get more even heat in your house. Uh, for us, with the forced air, if the fire's going, it's warming up. If the fire's going down, it may be cooling off in the house. Uh, with the, uh, the boiler, it'll just move that water to try and set a thermostat uh, or to, to move to a certain temperature. And if it needs more heat, it generally has electronics to kick in the draft, get the fire going, heat that boiler up, etc., uh, they often have a larger firebox, which means that they can go longer between fill-ups. Um, and it can often, you know, the another nice thing about that is you can move that heat further than you can with hot water. Generally, you can run that through an insulated PEX pipe up to about 150 to 200 feet uh, if you want to heat, you know, keep the stove away from your house or if you want to heat a second, third, fourth building. Uh, another house, a greenhouse, a shop, uh, etc. 
the other thing that will happen is that you can use that hot water uh, to heat your hot water. Uh, so it has some additional benefits with a boiler. But like I said, with the cost-to-benefit ratio, we went with a forced air unit um, with the lower maintenance, etc. You know, it was about half the cost of a boiler. So it, it depends on your situation, and, you know, just kind of pencil that out. The other big thing that's happened lately is that I, I mentioned the rocket stoves. Um, it's kind of been the amount of wood gas in the wood has caught the attention of these manufacturers. And now we've moved on to where we've got basically commercial-style gasifier stoves. And so you've got to have a drier firewood than what I've been mentioning first, you know, probably two years dry. Uh, but they have a secondary combustion chamber in them uh, that will reduce the smoke and particulates that come out the chimney but also give you higher efficiency uh, and, more, you know, basically more heat from the same amount of firewood. So it's something that's interesting, and I would say that it's on the commercial side is probably the biggest improvement in wood stoves since the Franklin stove, and that's been a little while. That's been a while. Hey, the old Ben's have been gone a long time, man. Uh, he hung on for a while, too, and uh, left us a lot of prodigy, but uh, he has been gone a while. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, now, go ahead. One other thing I want to add is that there's government regulations that came out about two to three years ago specifically on boilers. And it says that if you want to get a new boiler, you do need to get one of these gasifiers that have been certified under, you know, such and such program, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, This is kind of like the light bulb thing that happened. Sure. And it's really kind of ludicrous because when you read into the details, that's for residential only. So if you want to get one of the old wood stoves and you want to use that for a greenhouse or commercial venture of any kind, like for a lumber kiln or, or anything like that, totally okay. Huh. No problem. You can buy a brand new one today. Uh, hopefully you don't. You get a competent plumber that makes sure that the lines get connected to the right place and don't inadvertently end up in your house. Accidentally heat your house with it by accident, totally by accident. It'd be terrible. Especially out of place in the country where nobody ever bothers nobody and no one would ever care. That'd be awful if that happened. <laughs> it's a damn shame, man. Now, what I was going to add is, and this is probably the least efficient and least useful of everything, unless you're sitting there looking at a fireplace that sucks. Um, we did a fireplace insert uh, in Arkansas, and the difference was, you know, it was five times better. It was still, you know, maybe 40% as good as a, even like a freestanding wood stove. But the difference was so worth the cost because the installation was pretty much well there it is and and so i would i would say that if you especially if you like me live more to the south and you're not dealing with a lot of times where it's 10 degrees outside and you just want supplemental heat that fireplaces suck all right they just yeah. suck there's there is no good it, it looks cool it it warms the room you're in up a little bit but you were talking about draft well, it's so inefficient that if you put a thermometer in the next room, as this room warms up, you can watch the temperature in that room go down, uh, where an insert does a, a fairly decent job. So I would throw that out there at least as an option for people. Like if I was building a house and I had control of this, no. But if you own a house and there's a fireplace sitting there and you want more efficiency out of it, I don't know a better way to do it for less money anyway. 
Absolutely, and you mentioned it's it's rather climate dependent. I mean, that's a big point there. So, I'm kind of in the middle of the country. I'm zone six A, uh, so it's going to be different than somebody's down south. I've got a friend in Mississippi that said, "Well, cut next year's firewood, and it's a mound, you know, like maybe five foot in diameter, two foot tall." Yeah, and I'm like, "Oh, you suck." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then you go up in the northeast, and you know they may, buy, you know, burn quite a bit more. Or four, uh, six cores costs a lot more up in the northeast. So, whereas one of these gasifier stoves really doesn't make a lot of sense here for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, diminishing returns, etc. It really, if you're, especially if you're buying your firewood and it's two hundred fifty dollars a cord in the northeast, it could make a lot of sense for you up there. So, it depends. It always depends. It, like, what are you getting out of your your firewood? Like, I know Ben Falk has a pretty old style stove, um, but he's heating his his basement, his house, his hot water. He's using it to dry stuff. It's in a stove. There's a you know a pot of stock on pretty much all winter long. As soon as like one's kind of worn out, a new pot goes on. So. Um, you know, and you're getting all your hot water for your showers out of it. If you're doing that, so instead of having an ultra-efficient stove that makes the most use out of every piece of wood, he's got function stacking work in there. So I think it always depends on who you are, where you are, how much time you have to fart around with it. Like, if you live and work on site, and you're going to have to fiddle with something like he does, you know, six times a day, it's no big deal. Uh, if you go to work... Well, it's a different story, right? I mean, if you leave, I think during the winter, he just kind of, it sucks. It's Vermont. He doesn't go anywhere, right? You know? <laughs> he, just, he just stay inside, you know? So, I, I, I mean, you know, like, so I think it always has kind of the, the, the big uh, constant, it depends, out there. Um, one thing that's a constant, though, no matter what you're using, you're going to have some maintenance. So can you kind of talk about the maintenance required on a stove or, let's say, for your furnace or what have you? Absolutely. Our experience has been pretty simple. We've had very few issues with our stove. Uh, we got ours well used, uh, and then we've used it another four years since that. I, the thing's got to be 20 years old before we got it. Uh, the basic maintenance that we do is, you know, once or twice a week we'll clean out the ash. Ours is nice. It has an ash pan. Uh, most of them do, but if you don't, then it's kind of a pain. you got to get in there with a shovel and scoop it out. Um we generally have to replace the door gasket about once a year. Uh, that generally takes me, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour. Uh, we watch the rain cap for buildup, uh, any creosote or tar, anything that gets up into that. Um, generally, I, I need to rebuild our rain cap because what's on there is a very thin sheet metal, and it really should be more like a wire. Uh, and I notice it very quickly. We'll, we won't get as much heat in the house if it gets any buildup on it at all. Uh, and, and so I'll have to, you know, get up and clean that, which we've got a six-foot section of chimney, so getting up and cleaning that kind of means climbing up on the side of the stove with, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's very simple and quick for us to do. Uh, if you've got to get up on a roof, it takes longer, of course. Uh, and then, you know, you want to check your chimney, you know, annually. Uh, if you've got questionable wood, maybe more often, uh, but as long as your wood's relatively dry, you know, once a year is probably fine. Uh, if you've got a boiler, you're going to have some more maintenance. In addition to everything that I've mentioned here, uh, you've got to make sure that your water level is, uh, you know, you got to make sure your water level is at a, uh, the proper level 
if it goes too low, you could have uh, you know boiling off and uh, uh, cavitation of the uh, of the water. That can lead to some really bad things. Uh, luckily, most of those stoves are going to be an open system rather than a closed system, so you're not going to have the explosive uh, explosive properties uh, of steam. But uh, you still boil off your water level. If it gets too low, it can get a lot lower a lot quicker. So. Uh, kind of like locked up brakes. It, it feeds back real quick. Hmm. In addition, you're going to put in uh, some antifreeze uh, as well as an anti-corrosive agent. And you really should probably have some sort of a side in there, a bio side of some sort. Because uh, if you have that water uh, and it stays at that you know nice uh, biologically active temperature, you can get some nasty things in there like Legionella mm-hmm. uh, that are terrible for... Uh, uh, like cooling towers and such like that, uh, and so we really need something in there to make sure that that and uh, our other See, bacteria. You're, you're making me think of Paul Wheaton again because when I've talked to him about solar hot water, he's like, "I hope you like Legionnaires' disease." <laughs> <laughs> I think they have a plan sure. for that, Paul. But but yeah, I mean, you, you, if you keep lukewarm water around long enough, something's going to grow in it. Absolutely. So. Um, what about splitting? Like, how do you are you out there with a big old mule mall, you know, like a lumberjack, or you know, what what's your thought on splitters? Um, my thought on splitters and specifically splitting, splitting can be largely optional. Uh, it's part of our, you know, efficiency drive and, and trying to reduce our total labor in our firewood, especially for what we use. Uh, if it fits through the door, that's good enough. Uh, our door is twelve by twelve. And we can fit a, a log in there about 24 inches long. So if it'll fit, it's good enough, and uh, uh, it'll burn. Uh, we get enough smaller stuff to mix in with that that it, it's never been a problem. Um, splitting, some people look at that as, as trying to remove water. Uh, but, you know, most moisture in a log is going to be lost through the ends. You kind of have to consider it like a firewood log or stick to be kind of like a bundle of straws in a way. Straws are really small, but what's in the straws is going to evaporate out pretty quickly. Uh, what's left is going to be the tight water, which takes longer to dry, and splitting only helps a little bit then. Uh, so as such, we kind of split only when needed, only when we need it to fit. Uh, and we can always split smaller if we need some smaller stuff. Uh, so it's never been an issue. Now, I'll be honest, we do split most of our wood by hand. Uh, so we've got a, uh, a fiberglass handle splitting mall, and then we've also got a couple old monster malls, and they've done a really good job for us for a lot of years. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the lumberjack kind of thing. You know, it, some muscle helps, but honestly, it's 90% technique and accuracy. No, it is. You know, hitting the same place twice and about 10% muscle. Yeah. Uh, my, my wife started splitting some firewood this year, and she she kind of enjoyed it. So uh, You mentioned Monster Mall. I remember the first one I, was, I ever saw. I was about 14 years old, and at 14, I was able to split logs. And I wasn't – I was pretty hoss by the time I got out of high school. I was not at 14. I was a, I was a big 17-year-old, but I was a little 14-year-old. And it, <laughs> it wasn't about – you know, muslin. In fact, I remember we actually we broke one of the old monster malls. It was a metal handle right up to the in a metal uh, wedge, mm-hmm. and we actually mm-hmm. broke one. My uncle took it to work, threw four welding rods on it, it welded it back together. I bet he's still using it. I mean, it, 
There ain't much to go wrong with it. It's a big old hunk of metal. Absolutely. We've welded one, too. Uh, the only caution about that is that it, it is a high impact. So, like, like, I like to use the fiberglass handle more anymore, and that's mainly because my dad's gone through so, uh, shoulder surgery uh, for you know years of farm work and you know driving fence posts by hand and splitting wood by hand. And so, I'm like, mm, what can I learn from this? You know, let's use the fiberglass one, and, and we're going to call that good. So, for the most part. Well, yeah, and I mean, it just it does take some of the vibration off of your body and all, too. I'll say this. I picked up, when we had our fireplace up in Arkansas, I picked up a 10-ton uh, hydraulic log splitter from track, uh, not Hart Grinder Supply, uh, what's that cheap place, Harbor Freight. And sure. they shipped it for free. I don't know how, because the damn thing, damn near to freight <laughs> to bring it. But, uh, it's you know, you kind of use it, it looks like, like you're uh, on one of those... Uh, skiing machines or something or like you know mm -hmm. Tony somebody's gazelle or something you know your arms go back and forth man that thing is worth its weight it just, as long as the wood is wood that's ready to be split I mean that's sure. that's a big thing like some some you know stuff is does need a little bit of dry time before it'll split nice for you but it worked fantastic and I wouldn't probably be using that for as much wood as you burn. But for the person with a fireplace insert that, you know, runs their thing, you know, maybe 60 days a year at the, uh, 60 days a year, uh, that thing, as long as you got a place to keep it, because it's pretty big. And did, anybody wants to buy one uh, <laughs> that's nearby, I'll make you a hell of a deal on it. I don't have a wood stove here anymore or a fireplace here. So it's it's been sitting in my garage since we moved here. Uh, we have used it. Sometimes split some stuff up for the campfire outside, just because students like to play with it or whatever. But it's, it's I, again, Harbor Freight, how they ship stuff, I don't understand. Because that thing, I mean, if I went to mail it to you, I'd probably spend more than it's worth to mail it to you. <laughs> probably. It must have it a good deal. Uh, yeah, so that sounds like it would be a really you know good setup for somebody with a small fireplace. Yeah. Uh, and you do need to split more when you're doing something like that. That's why I bring it up. Like, yeah, your furnace, you throw a telephone pole in there if you want to. But, like, when you're burning in, like, a small fireplace and all, you, you kind of don't want to shove a, you know, a 12-inch girth log off in there. It, it, it won't burn well either. I mean, that's the other thing. Absolutely. So what do you mean by handling firewood the lazy way? You've got that in your notes here. Uh, I had a couple other things I was going to add on. No, go ahead. We can back okay. up. We've got time. You have 10 seconds? Yeah, I've got as much as you want, man. Go ahead. Okay, cool. Uh, one of the, uh, th you know, some other tricks that we found is that, like, if you get that wood and it's good and frozen, that may be a problem in Texas. But if it's got some, any moisture in it at all, which you'll usually have a little bit left in it anyway, uh, if it's frozen, it's going to split better. Like, I was just amazed when we got that ash out there i took in uh once it got good and froze down to you know 10 20 degrees outside i went outside and split a few pieces of it i just had after the third or fourth split i just had a smile on my face i'm like wow <laughs> this is nice stuff i wish we had more of this uh, the other thing we found is that if you take that block and you can turn it upside down from the way the tree was growing it tends to it tends to split easier uh, if you've got like little tight knots in there and such like that, if you try and split it 
you know, the way the tree was growing, they fight you. But if you go the other way, it doesn't fight you near as much, and you can split the wood a lot easier. Uh, we found, you know, practice technique is a lot of it. Um, you know, the, another big thing about splitting wood is being able to read the wood. So if you've got, like, a crotch in it, then, you know, you want to split it a certain way. If you've got cracks in a round, you know, try and take advantage of those cracks that are already there and widen them out. And you use a lot less, a uh, lot fewer calories to split that wood out. Um, and sometimes you can't, you just kind of have to say, well, <laughs> let's noodle it maybe, which is taking a chainsaw vertically on it. I've done uh, it. And sometimes it may be best to just make a bowl or something out of it on a lathe with some of that, you know, that pretty wood if it's splitting hard. Uh, we do have a couple uh, hydraulic splitters. They are nice. Oh, they are, yeah. Uh, but they can be, you know, a bit expensive and slow. Uh, one of ours is on a trailer. The other one mounts to the back of a tractor. Um, I can outsplit the splitters. But it's kind of like John Henry. I can only do it for so long versus that steam shovel. Uh, over time, uh, you know, the, the splitter wins for sure. But we do kind of, you know, it's for no more than we do. Um, it, it's kind of hard to justify taking it out all the time. So we'll split what we can by hand, and then when we accumulate some hard stuff, then we'll go back through it and split it out with the, uh, the tractor-powered splitter. Um, they do make a nice little fast splitter. It, it, you know, there's various names for it, but it's, you know, like a rapid-fire splitter. Um, I think they have their application. I look at it, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cute, you know, uh, because I look at the videos that they use, and the rounds that they're splitting out are ones that I'm just going to put in the fireplace. So, you know, I don't know how it would handle the tough wood that we'll, you know, throw at it. Um, I... You know, for the right application, I could see it being a good place. I kind of see it being good for, like what you said, Ben Falk and his cook stove. You know, that would work really good to get a nice, uh, even fire. Uh, but for the larger stuff, you know, I don't know. So You know, it does make me think. It is a, it's a weird thing. If you get some experience with it, you'll look at a log and you'll sit there and turn it over and then turn it this way, you know, maybe rotate it 3 o'clock, and you just know, like, there's that one spot in this one log, if I hit it, it's going to split easy. And it's weird when you're splitting wood with someone never did it before, because you're like, well, put it like that, and they're like, why? And you're like, sometimes you, sometimes you can be like, well, you see this here, or there's already a little crack there, but a lot of times you're like, I don't even know what to tell you, I just know. That it's gonna it's gonna split, and then for God's sakes, don't try splitting wood on the ground. You know, get a big log or something if you're gonna be splitting it with a maul or whatever. So there's something to have that same kind of density thunk against uh, as well. Um, what did you mean though by uh, handling firewood the lazy way? The hydraulic splitter is a good example of that because it is a little slower, but you can sit there and drink a beer and just toss logs in it. <laughs> Well, uh, so I've spent some time in industry, and a lot of that was, you know, looking at increasing efficiency, doing spaghetti charts, trying to save money on uh, on handling and movement, etc. Uh, and so I've kind of conv- combined that with, you know, what I've learned from, uh, you know, my experience and my family's, you know, experience that they've passed down to me, and you know, we put it together with some methods that, you know, they're not necessarily pretty. Uh, and some of them go against some common traditions, uh, but they're pretty cheap, 
and they keep the house warm all winter long. Uh, so we kind of, you know, focus on the, the pragmatic thing rather than trying to make a nice, pretty stack of firewood. So uh, I've mentioned this a little bit already. Number one, I'm going to say is, you know, save time on cutting and splitting. Well, I guess there's two parts here. 2A, uh, you know, is if it'll fit through the door, you know, you may want to see if it'll work as opposed to splitting it down to a smaller piece. Uh, if you have a choice, if you're looking for a stove, you know, you want to look for a stove that's going to have a big throat so you can and a, a long firebox so you can put longer pieces and bigger rounds in it uh, so you can reduce how much, uh, you can reduce your cutting time by being able to cut longer logs, which means fewer cuts for the same volume. Uh, and then you're going to split less, uh, and, and that's, you know, usually splitting. If, if I'm splitting everything, it takes me as long to split it as, as it does to uh, cut up all the firewood. So I try to avoid that when I can. Uh, number two is going to be, you know, plan your cut. And this is uh, some planning beforehand can really help out. If you've already, fell, you know, fell the tree and, uh, you know, it's on the ground, they're never exactly straight and your ground's never exactly straight, uh, flat. If you can take some sticks, throw those sticks under the trunk, you know, Kind of depends on, on how big you're cutting, but, you know, every 5 feet, 10 feet or so. Uh, then whenever you're doing your cuts, you can keep that stick up out of the dirt. Um, and uh, you keep your keep the stick up out of the dirt, which also means keeping your chain up out of the dirt. Uh, it really simplifies things, and you're not trying to, to get things just so. Uh, so that can speed things up. Uh, number three, I would say, is, like, I don't look for the biggest tree out there. Uh, if I do have a big tree, I'm going to want to run that through the sawmill anyway. Uh, but I try and find the right size of a tree because if you get the right size, it really stacks up fast. And so my ideal size would be where I'm splitting the bottom maybe five, ten, you know, foot of the trunk, maybe in halves or quarters, and then the rest of it's going to be bigger rounds that, you know, may just go through the door. Uh, if I'm out and, you know, getting trees that size, if I have a choice, uh, you know, I'm going to get more firewood for my time than either like lots of little ones or dealing with big ones uh, and, and splitting out more. So it's kind of the uh, the optimum point on the bell curve. Uh, number four is what I kind of call uh, odds and ends. When I'm cutting the firewood, I try and make straight firewood sticks that will stack well as quick as I can. I'm not really that worried about having an even length as long as it, it's, it's, uh, as long as it will stack well. Uh, and then all the stuff in between, I've seen people pitch that onto a bonfire. Uh, what I'll do is I'll grab like a, a, either another trailer or else an IBC cage or, or something like that and then throw that in there. And then that's, you know, what I call, you know, odds and ends. Things that's your, your odd pieces, some of your slash, yeah. things like that. Mm-hmm. If you've got a small crotch or something yeah. like that that just you know didn't work, it goes in there and it just kind of gets burned first. So, um, and that's that saves quite a bit of time. So, you know that's that's a nice one. Uh, number five is like I like to look for dead and dry wood. So like deadfall, you know, standing dead, etc. Um, I you know I can move that quicker from the woods into the stove. Uh, and that really works well with the number six, which is, you know, kind of reducing your handling. 
one of the biggest things that we've done is like we will go out in the woods and we will cut it, split it right where it lays, and then it goes into a trailer. Um, you know uh, that uh, we've got like a small fleet of pickup bed trailers and other small trailers like that. Uh, so it gets thrown into a trailer, and then it'll either go under a roof or else have some tin strapped over it. Uh, and then we will back that trailer right up to the stove, and it goes straight from the trailer to the stove. So it only gets handled from the from the ground to the trailer, and then from the trailer to the stove. And uh, you know, cutting down on that handling uh, is a significant portion of time. Uh, any machines that you can use to uh, that you happen to have to use with this is is a, a big time saver. Uh, skid steers are great. Um, even just like a tractor and loader, I've seen people load uh, long, you know, tree length logs up on top of a rack on a wagon. And they'll cut that down. It slides down to a splitter. It's a really pretty slick and uh, inexpensive system. Uh, we're actually looking to build a small processor here. Uh, based on like a, a mounted cha hinged chainsaw and a, a flatbed trailer with some conveyor belts uh, and then an old hay elevator. I've got most of the pieces and uh, look forward to working on that. Uh, number seven, I'm going to say that, you know, you want to get some good tools with you. Uh, you know, chainsaws kind of go without saying, but beyond that, uh, I've been really impressed with a couple tools I've used the last couple years. Uh, one's a pickeroon or a, a hook-a-rune, it kind of looks like an axe has kind of been sharpened down to a point. And what it does is it gives you a lot longer reach. And so you can kind of, you can take that and swing it up into a trailer and pull the wood back to you so you don't have to climb up in the trailer and move the wood and handle it multiple times. Uh, the other thing that's been awesome for me, and this is something I just discovered this winter, is uh, uh, these uh, grabber tongs. I'm not sure the actual name. Uh, but it's kind of like an ice hook type thing. You know, it's got a handle on it, and you can push it down onto the log or onto your, your firewood stick, pick it up. And so what I'll do is I'll take two or three sticks and stick them under my arm and then grab a third one with the, the grabber uh, and then walk that over to the trailer. And that is a huge back saver. Uh, it saves a little bit on labor, uh, but mostly, man, I, I notice how much better my back feels the next day. Uh as far as uh, number eight, I would say is keep it dry. Keep your firewood dry. If you can get some pallets, those are great. Uh, we've got several pallets laid out here on the farm around the stove. Uh, and I mentioned, you know, the trailers. This year we kind of broke that uh, because we were expecting to, I was expecting to have a lot of overtime this fall. So I got all of my firewood, and we only have so many trailers. Uh, so I got all my firewood laid out on pallets and uh, covered with tin uh, right by my stove. Uh, and that way it, it would keep dry. Um, dry firewood is going to give you better efficiency. And like I mentioned, you know, I don't, for us, it's not really worth building a building, uh, but to keep it up off the ground keeps it from wicking and, and uh, keeps it from sponging water off the ground. And it'll just burn a whole lot better. Uh, you know, keeping the rain off it is a, is a big perk, too. Um, you know, nine, you know, you got to see what works for your situation. I mean, this is something that's worked well for us, uh, but, you know, take what you can use, uh, you know, and throw away what, you you know, doesn't work. You know, if I can, if you get one good tip out of this, I'm going to be pretty happy. <laughs> um, 
And then, you know, 10, just kind of always be looking for ways to improve. So if there's something that you see, you know, try it. Uh, worst case scenario, it doesn't work, but, I mean, you might find something that really uh, increases your efficiency and reduces your time in handling. Very cool, man. I I, I think I was a, you're clearly well prepared for this interview, man. I appreciate that. Um, we, I mentioned some of the stuff Ben Falk does. What are some of your thoughts on some different function stacking things you can do? One of the things I've tried this winter, and this has been a lot of fun for me, is I've been making charcoal in my fireplace. So, in, you know, I basically would put in extra firewood so that it would start to burn down, and then I'd kind of take, an, take a lazy eye and watch the smoke. And when it switches over from black to clear, uh, then I would uh, open it up and scoop out a whole bunch of coals into a, a metal bucket, um, and then I would uh, cool it off with either snow or water, and then I ca capped that off with some uh, some ashes. So I had no cost in this other than the metal bucket, uh, and I, but I was able to make you know four you know four four and a half gallons of uh, charcoal at a time, uh, right out of the fireplace. And uh, I think that's a lot of you know it, it's been a lot of fun for me just to try it. Um, and as far as okay, well that's neat. What do you do with that? I mean, there's options there. So if you're looking to do some biochar for your garden, it's a real easy way to do it. Uh, I'm looking forward to trying grilling with it. Uh, I know people that have done this and used it in their forge. Uh, the biggest thing I'm looking at is I want to build a small gasifier that will run off of this charcoal that will run a small generator. And the reason here is I think I can produce enough charcoal to run that generator that will run the blower and a few lights in my house in case there's a power outage, then I don't have to worry about gas so much, uh, you know, running out of gasoline for the generator in the wintertime, and uh, I just have that extra comfort level that the house will be warm. Uh, other things that we've done is we'll take that ash. That ash is really good for uh, as a source of lime. It's very high calcium. It has a lot of minerals left in it. Uh, People say to beware of putting too much of that in your garden. Uh, around here, that'd be a really hard problem, you know, hard thing to do. Putting too much on. <laughs> we did a soil analysis on our pastures last year, uh, and they recommended five tons per acre to be spread on it. Uh, that's a lot. So <laughs> uh, we spread two tons this year, and we'll probably do another. Uh, you know, let it absorb. We'll probably do another two tons in about a year or two, uh, but. As far as most of the country, uh, despite having a limestone underbed in a lot of places, you know, most of the soils around are, are going to be acidic, and so putting that in your garden could be a real benefit. Uh, we also function stack with uh, our firewood is mostly from Timber Stand Improvement, or TSI. Uh, and so what we're, what a lot of people seem to do, you know, we've got relatives that have come out and cut on our place, and they seem to want to go straight for that tallest, straightest oak that's just about 10 years away from making a good saw log. <laughs> and uh, it just kind of makes me cringe. And so what I, try, what I do is I'll take the bad stuff instead, and then I'll take the good log and sell that as uh, the good wood and sell it as, a, as a, a log to a sawmill, or else I'll mill it myself. Um, if, you do, you know, if you do sell that, you're going to get a lot of wood from the, uh, from the tops from the logs anyway. Uh, 
Let's see here. Another thing that is uh, uh, goes along with timber stand improvement is also uh, wildlife improvement. Got a friend of mine that started calling that deer stand improvement or DSI uh, to combine that with the forestry side of it. Um, so you can do a lot of hinging and, and work like that. Uh, like that, you can take and stack the uh, the brush and leave uh, that for the brush piles for the rabbits. Um, you know, also, you know, you may not take all of the firewood or it may be in a process. We've got an area back here, about six acres, where I've hinge cut a lot of the elm, and I do plan to take it for firewood eventually, but any of the ones that would hold the hinge and then re-sprout, I let them do that, and, uh, you know, it works great for the deer. Uh, my main purpose is for my goats, uh, but, it, you know, it goes both ways. Deer and goats are are very similar in a lot of ways. They're the number one and number two highest metabolism ruminants uh, in North America. So uh, We will also generate a lot of our firewood while we're clearing fence rows. Uh, so we get a you know double use out of that. It's work we're going to have to do anyway. And then we get an extra, you know, it's like getting a bonus with your paycheck, you know. We had to do the work, and then we, you know, instead of throwing it in a brush pile and burning it out there, we heat our house with it. Uh, probably the best thing, though, is that this can be a family activity. I've got a lot of fond memories uh, from cutting firewood with my grandparents and my parents. And, uh, you know, you can make kind of a day out of this pretty nicely. Um, I guess I'll start off with a, like how not to do it, which is what we did two years ago. Uh, we were trying to get some wood uh, cut up before it snowed, and uh, we decided I had a, uh, quite a bit of it laid out, and uh, we were trying to uh, got the family, took them back in the woods, and we decided we we're going to have some sandwiches and, uh, you know, fill out the load, you know, cut enough to fill out the load and then be done before the rain and snow. We got back there, and every time I fired up the chainsaw, uh, my eight-month-old would just scream. Uh, so leaving him in the stroller did not work. Uh, so he had to be held uh, every time the chainsaw was running. Uh, then when we went to have sandwiches, we realized that the only thing that got packed was a peanut butter jar and a spoon. So <laughs> you want to have some planning, but you know you can make a day out of you know make a day or an afternoon out of this if you take the brush piles and make a nice little fire. You can have a weenie roast, uh, you know, roast some marshmallows. You know, let the kids ride on the on the firewood, run the splitter, etc. Uh, you can really make some great memories. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's one of my favorite things to do. You know, we make it a family event. Well, and I think that we could use more men taking time with kids. I mean, that's that's just something. So no matter what it is, I think that's a, a good thing. And it's a good skill for a young person to develop. I mean, I, I think we've kind of screwed up and, and taken all the danger out of our kids' lives, and therefore they don't respect danger or life when they get older, like, I was watching, uh, I don't know if you ever watched any cooking shows, but I was watching Alton Brown, uh, one of his old reruns, and he does kind of a show, if you remember when you were a kid, there was a show called Mr. Wizard. It's like Mr. Wizard makes cooking. And he had his nephew, and it was his real nephew and his, his real sister on, and you know, they're play acting the part. But he, the kid's like 13, and he's making soup with him. And 
even pre-cut some stuff so it wasn't slippery or dangerous. And the kid picks up the knife, and the 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 the, the mom is just freaking out, right? Oh my god, he's gonna have to get that horrible <laughs> knife, you know? And it's like, you know, when I was a kid, you you know, first of all, long before I was thirteen, I was using band saws and stuff like that in high school. So you get a kid out and you're using a, a chainsaw, even if the kid's too young to use the chainsaw. Being around someone using something like that, being told if I can reach out and touch you, you're too close, sure. right? And, and like we're gonna do this this way because that, and, and just having that experience. I mean, I think that's lacking in a lot of our kids' lives. So uh, I really appreciate with you, especially the climate we're in right now, bringing that up. So that's that's definitely spot on. Um, kind of finishing up here, what do you feel kind of the ROI is on this type of thing? Uh, as far as, you know, the, the labor versus the amount of uh, BTUs or whatever we get out of this. Sure. Uh, it's definitely going to depend on your climate and, uh, you know, your availability of firewood, etc. Uh, for us, we've tracked it a bit, and uh, what we find is that, you know, if you add up everything, like if you want to account for the truck and the stove and the, uh, you know, everything else, you know, it may not be all that great, Uh but in another sense, it is great. Uh, you know, for us, we've already got the chainsaws. We've always got, already got the truck, you know, and the trailers, etc. cetera. Uh, so it's, you know, stuff that we've already have and use. Um, as such, we figure that we save about $200 a month uh, during the cold months, which is, you know, kind of December, January, February. Um, and, you know, that, that's pretty significant amount of money for us uh so i've kind of analyzed it twice and you know when i was in college i would come home and you know work the hog farm and then come back home and i would have about an hour before it got dark i would get, jump in the truck take the saw and gas and go out and chunk up some firewood and have a thrown load in the pickup bring it back up to the house uh and you know by dark and then uh, that would last a week. And I would just, you know, the next week we'd just do it again. I'd spend about a half hour sharpening, uh, you know, and that worked out pretty good. Uh, that jives really well with what I've currently been measuring as well. Uh, I figure that it takes me about three hours to fill a trailer, a pickup bed trailer, uh, with about three quarters of a cord. That's stacked. That's tall, and that's across the tailgate, too. That trailer load will last me about two weeks. And, uh, you know, a little bit more. Um, I I figure if you have about six hours a month in it, which would be, you know, the two trailer loads, six hours, that works out to about $33 per hour, which is a very respectable, you know, wage, uh, at least around here. That you're not being taxed on, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. So, you know, that's a pretty significant return on labor for me. Uh, if you want to include, you know, removing the ash, if you want to include filling the stove, etc., like I said, it's about five minutes four times a day. Uh, so that could be 16 hours a month, you know, divided by $200 savings. Uh, that works out to like 18.75 an hour, and that's still pretty decent. Uh, not to mention, you know, all the other functions that I'm getting out of it with the uh, the lime in the garden as well as the uh, timber stand improvement. 
Well, and I think, I mean, on ROI, you do have to look at things like, well, is it really all hours worked for heat if I'm clearing a fence row? Absolutely. You know, I mean, like, like, so there's some of that stuff is like, it's, it would almost be a loss not to, uh, not to take it if, if you, if you catch my drift, you know? Absolutely. And it's good exercise. I mean, that's a plus. It's like I've been, you know, especially when I worked, uh, worked in a cubicle, I was, you know, quite a bit overweight. I've dropped an X off of my L, which has been a big plus. Um, and one of the biggest things for me is that when I have a stack of firewood, that gives me a lot of peace of mind. Uh, you know, I've got that, like I said, I've got that little uh, gas-sipping generator that will run a blower and a few lights if the electric goes out. Uh, if I've got a deep wood pile and a deep pantry, I'm not overly concerned about anything else. No, I, I agree. I mean, if you, and all you have to do is not have an alternative source of heat and have it be seven degrees out once, and you'll, you'll understand that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and frankly, we keep the house warmer than we used to as well. I say it used to be, you know, those numbers there were from keeping the house around 66 to 68. Um, I've kind of got a new thermostat now I joke about. And uh, if I'm home, uh, generally I'll put wood in until my wife, you know, decides that she needs to wear a tank top. And then whenever she decides the wind- we need to open the windows, that's when I'll stop. So <laughs> that's... I'm saying, in addition, it's nice because it puts the firewood will put you in touch with seasonal cycles, and I mean I think that's something that's very easily overlooked. It's really an intangible. Uh, but where you're discussing, you know, suicide last week, you know, having some seasonality can really bring a lot of peace to a lot of people. Uh, one of the things that's always been discussed is the suicide rate between farmers and dentists, and whether or not that's an urban legend, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but, um, you know, they say that the farmer that can see the seasonal effects of what happens can see progress, and, you know, a dentist that only sees their customer, you know, once every six months, and they always have cavities, <laughs> uh, you know, leads to a lot higher suicide rate for dentists, so. No, I, I definitely see that, and it's also just a sense of purpose, Right, like yeah. you're getting something done, you're seeing something happen. So yeah, I can see that definitely being just a uh, an almost uh, inability to price the ROI on having a sense of purpose in your life, and if you're sharing it with your family, a sense of purpose in their lives as well. Absolutely, I say my wife, she always appreciates the firewood, you know, but I don't think she's ever thanked me for uh, paying the electric bill. So. <laughs> Well, uh, dude, Ted, I, I really appreciate you being with us today. It's been a great discussion. I think it'll probably benefit a lot of members of the audience, and, and, and thanks for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for all you do, planting seeds of hope and ideas and that you may never even see the fruit of. It's the human's work. Well, I really enjoyed talking to uh, to Ted today, and I think this is a good subject for us to address from many different uh, opinions. We've had uh, Paul on to talk about his view with rocket mass heaters. We've had Ben Falk on, who you know Ben does a tremendous amount with wood in his climate and has his unique way of doing it. And and Ted, in a different part of the country from both of them, more of a traditional view. And I think it's all awesome, and I think we all need to pick what works best for us in our situation. 
Uh, with things wrapped up today, I want to remind you guys you can help support the show uh, a couple different ways. One is by joining the Members Support Brigade. If you want to do that, just get on over to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more about the program there. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or active duty, prior service, uh, first responders, EMT, paramedics, firefighters, anything law enforcement like that, uh, you do qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join. Uh, to get the discount code, because if you join and then want the discount, it, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, but again, email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Remember, folks, if you email me anything, Jack, what was that recipe that you mentioned way back when? Jack, you're a jerk. Whatever. I don't care what you're sending me. If you want to make sure I see it, always include TSPC, like it's a word in the subject line, And even if it's a couple weeks when I get lazy and don't dig stuff out of the spam box, sooner or later I'll see it. If you don't do that, and it goes in the spam box, there's a 90% chance or higher that I won't. Okay, guys, the other way you can support me is really, really easy. All you got to do is you're going to do some online shopping. You're going to buy something online, anything online. Go to tspaz.com first and do your shopping through tspaz and you help support the work we do. Uh, I also have all my reviews of Amazon items available at T-Spaz, and uh, today we have one I'm bringing back. I haven't brought it around for a long time. It's a German-style fermentation crock. I brought this around today because it's winter, but it's also heading to spring, right? I mean, we just mentioned TikTok, TikTok, February, gone. Um, and it's a good time of year to be growing cabbage. And one of the highest and best uses of cabbage is make it in in a sauerkraut. You can do a lot of other fermentation. I actually have one of my recipes for escabeche um, in in the uh, write-up today that you can learn more about. But sauerkraut's a good thing, you know. Uh, let me give you a little tip with your sauerkraut. If you take a couple oak leaves or you take some grape leaves, the tannin that's in there will help make your sauerkraut more crunchy. And it's just about... Absolutely a have-to-have have if you want to make uh, fermented pickles. Because if you don't add that tannin from something like grape leaf or oak leaf, what's going to happen is you're going to get mushy, disgusting, gross pickles. Trust me, I found out the hard way because no one told me that. Like, my pickles suck. I went online and found that out. So I've saved you from ruining some pickles. But this is a German-style fermentation crock. It's made by a company called TSM Products. Uh, this is... An old-school-style German crock, man. This thing's great. It really helps control temperatures. It comes with some fermentation stones that fit in there and keep everything under the brine. Remember, when you're doing fermentation, there's an old little brine that'll, that'll just make everything good. Keep it under the brine, and everything will be fine. It also has kind of a ridge in, in the, the top, and then the lid sits in that ridge. And into that ridge, what do we do? We add just some plain old water. And that forms an airlock so no nasties get back down in as the fermentation's taking place. It comes in a variety of sizes. 5 liter, which is about 1.3 gallons. 10 liter, which is 2.6. 15 liter, which is 3.9. And a 20 liter, which is like 5 gallons. Um, as you get bigger, they get pricey. But the uh, 5 liter one's like about 58, 59 bucks, something like that. And let me tell you something. 5 liters of sauerkraut, that's a lot of sauerkraut. 5 liters of escabeche, it's a lot of, it's a lot of escabeche. Uh, unless you're really laying up large amounts, I'm telling you, this is the best bang for the buck is a 5-liter. In fact, if I was thinking about getting a 10-liter, I would probably get two fives, and that way you'd have two different batches of two different things going at the same time. So check it out today, the German-style fermentation crock from TSM Products. You can find it at tspaz.com, and you can always support the Survival Podcast in a completely painless way by doing what? 
Go on to tspaz.com whenever you're going to do some online shopping. With that, we get up to our song of the day today. And our song of the day today is by a guy that I am completely blown away by. Because I don't spend that much time paying attention to new music. Because most new music, especially, you know, I love country. I love classic rock. I love folk rock. I love singer-songwriter stuff. And most of the new stuff in all of that is just pop crap. This guy, Chris Stapleton, I brought him to you a couple weeks ago with, with Scarecrow in the Garden. And uh, he's just something like when you hear the first time you hear this guy sing, you think to yourself, wow, that's different. That's something unique. His song today is called Fire Away, and it's one of those songs that had one meaning when it was recorded and took on another as they developed it and made the video for it. The song itself was about having to deal with a, a hot-tempered spouse uh, and, and being willing to stand through it all because he loves her so much. But as they made the video about it, it became kind of an anthem to depression and mental illness and suicide and the guy standing with his wife through everything and when you hear the song today you'll hear a little bit of laughter and some crying and some things going on in the background it's because it's straight out of the video which is really worth watching and in the uh the notes of the video and this is the official uh, uh chris stapleton vivo channel it has a link to a website called changedirection.org And it is a, a pretty sobering thing. And it asks people to take a pledge. A pledge to simply know the five signs of true emotional pain in someone that might need help. And I think it's something very germane to some of the conversations we've been having lately. Well, those five signs that a person may be in serious emotional pain and need help is personality change, being very agitated, being withdrawn, poor self-care, and being hopeless, seeing to be a person that's hopeless. And while this song ends up being about a spouse dealing with things, and I'll tell you in the video, eventually she does end her own life. And the husband and the, the, the deputy that find her just are distraught having to deal with it. It's, it's pretty uh, heart-tugging, honestly. And I think a guy like Chris Stapleton is perfect for a song like this because he make you feel what you're seeing, right? But I think that as parents, as uncles, as family friends, we need to be looking for these signs in our children. I guarantee you the majority of these kids that have gone out and shot someone or hung themselves exhibited these signs. And I know there has to be a temperance to it because, you know, a personality change, being agitated for a teenager, really, that's unusual. See what I mean? But as you start seeing withdrawal, poor self-care, and hopelessness, and those types of things, and this is the way I look at it. If you, if you look at someone and they seem like someone that might need some help, then it is better to, to follow up on that and be wrong and then have them just say they're okay and check into it and not maybe believe them right away and make sure you, you really check it out and be wrong about it, even if it pisses them off a little bit. Then it would be to not intervene and then one day find out that person harmed themselves or someone else. So I, I really like this, this concept behind change direction. 
And I think that if, I mean, we always talk about we have to do something, we have to do something. Well, they have basically the healthy habits of emotional well-being there. Take care, check in with people, engage with others, relax, and know the signs of emotional suffering so that you can help others. And then those signs, again, personality change, agitation, withdrawal, poor self-care, and hopelessness. And if we all kind of tried to take care of our own emotional well-being a little bit better and looked out for others, I think maybe we could do something. It makes me think of the guy that made a comment on the blog, on the, on Facebook where I posted about this and bullying. And he basically wrote the whole thing off and said there's always been bullying. And he, he went on this tirade that, it, you know, if little Johnny, if your little Johnny gets insulted at school and that hurts him so bad he can't function, you failed as a parent. If little Johnny gets called names on Facebook or Twitter and that causes him to ball up, then you failed as a parent. If he kills himself because of this stuff, then you failed as a parent. And he also went on about, I'm a Marine and I learned to be tough and blah, blah, and I teach my kids to be tough. And my response was, you know what? If your little kid, if your kid bullies Johnny, you failed as a parent. If your kid torments another kid on social media after they've gone home and can't even leave them alone then, then you failed as a parent. And if your kid stands by while other kids bully other kids and says nothing and doesn't intervene and won't reach out and be a friend to that person, then you failed as a parent. And by the way, you're failing as a Marine, which you're so proud of. Because what is the purpose of the strength? In the strong. What is the purpose of the training you receive as a soldier or a Marine? What is our job, those of us who are strong, if not to stand up for the weak? Military service is all about standing up for the weak. I'm tired of hearing people, I was 16 and I joined the Marine Corps. Well, first of all, you're lying. And second of all, that doesn't prove anything. It's not germane to the subject. If you actually are as strong as you say you are, then you have a duty and an obligation to stand up for the weak, especially if you took on the banner of service. In service, we stand for the weak. Whether we defend an ally or defend our nation, we are standing for the weak. And if you're strong, then that is your greatest obligation to your brothers and sisters, to stand for them. And we can do that with direct strength, which is intervention when necessary, being a sheepdog. But we can also do it from the standpoint of just being there, reaching out, and being willing to pull people up to stand alongside of us rather than always just stand above them. It's a combination approach. But any of you that are writing this stuff off, it's just being, well, when I was a kid, people were bullied too. Yes, so what? So what? I know people that went through horrible things in their lives, and they turned out okay. And I know people that went through things that weren't quite as bad, and they're dead today. It's okay that some of us are stronger than others. But it also means that we have an obligation to look after our brothers. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Unload up your questions and pick up your sticks and your stones. And pretend I'm a shelter for heartaches that don't have a home. 
Losing your... Yeah. 